Let's pray together. Lord, just like that psalm said, I pray that in the midst of our affliction, that you would give us faith to believe, to believe what Gabe was reminding us, that you love us, to believe what Romans 8 tells us, that even though we might be afflicted, that nothing can separate us from your love. We praise you for your faithfulness, even when we are not faithful. We thank you that you are a God who clings to us, even when we fail to grasp at you. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would come to know you more and trust you more and love you more. I pray that you would minister to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that reveals truth to us. We thank you for your word that points us to Christ. We thank you for your son who died for us. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. So just minister to us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, like I said, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're a guest with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on our little welcome table back there. We would love for you to take one of those and keep it. Let that be a gift from us to you. We're going to start in verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Peter writes, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Well, in my own journey as a Christian, one of the things that I sometimes wrestle with is this question, like, what is God's work in my life? What is His responsibility? And what is my work in my life? What is my responsibility? I assume I'm not the only person who wrestles with that question, from time to time, you struggle through life and different things come up and you might wonder, like, what, what part of this is my burden to bear and what part of this is God's burden to bear? What should I trust Him for and what should I get to work doing? Since God did the work of saving me, and that's obviously the most difficult work, well, what is there left for me to do? What responsibility falls to me? And if there's no responsibility, then what is the Bible teaching me about what it means to press on towards holiness, right? These are some things that I think as we walk through life, we wrestle with and we struggle through. And probably fully answering the question, like, what work belongs to God in the Christian life and what work belongs to us in the Christian life is uh, a bigger question than we could answer in any one sermon, to be sure. But I do think Peter gives us a starting point to work through this question in these verses this morning. So let's begin with God's work as we find it laid out in this text. If you look at verse 17, Peter tells us that God judges everyone impartially according to their deeds. So part of God's work as creator, as Lord, as God, as judge, is to judge everyone 
according to their deeds. And he judges in righteousness because he is just. And he is the judge of all the earth. And that God is an impartial judge means that he judges everyone according to the same standard. He applies the same standard. He doesn't judge pastors different than people in the congregation. He doesn't judge Americans different than he judges Australians. He doesn't judge men and women differently. He doesn't judge young and old differently. God is an impartial judge. Nobody will receive special treatment under God's just judgment. He judges all men alike. So then what is the standard by which he judges them? What is the expectation that God has for people? Well, Peter actually told us that already, but it was back in verse 15, and we kind of looked at that a little bit last week. He says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So God's standard by which he judges all people is the standard of holiness. There's lots of different ways that we can unpack what God's holiness is. Jesus says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. He also says, be perfect, therefore, as I am perfect. So God's holiness, in one degree, is his perfection. We could also say it is his complete and utter devotion to everything that is good and right and true. God is completely devoted to those things. We could say his holiness is his absolute hatred for everything that is evil or untrue, or false, or wrong. We can add to that that God's holiness is his complete devotion to his own honor and glory, his fierce determination to pour out his wrath upon everything that displeases him or is contrary to him, everything that does not completely and utterly conform to his perfect righteousness. God's holiness means that he will pour out his wrath on those things. So judgment then is part of God's work. And perfect holiness is the standard by which God will judge all people. So how are you doing living up to that standard? The standard of perfect righteousness and holiness. How are you doing living up to that standard? Does perfect holiness describe your deeds? Peter says God will judge impartially. And in verse 15, he said holiness is the standard by which he will judge. Has every moment of your life then been utterly and radically committed to pleasing God and honoring him in everything that you think and you do and you say? Have you hated evil and loved righteousness with all of your heart? Has your whole being, body, heart, mind, and soul, been fully devoted to what is good and right and true? Now, if you answer yes to those questions, you are a liar. (laughs) And you know it. And I know it, right? We know it. We have this phrase in our culture, oh, nobody's perfect. But if you're not a liar, then you need to understand that God's impartial judgment means that you are condemned. You are condemned. You are seriously screwed. God's standard is not 
are you a little bit better than that other guy? Or are you kind of like pretty good? Do you get like an 80%? That's not the standard. His standard is perfect holiness, and anything short of that, you are condemned under his righteousness. The judge of all the earth has weighed your soul and found you wanting. And there are really no words sufficient to describe the amount of trouble that you're in under God's wrath. I mean, as a pastor, I said you're seriously screwed, but that does not even begin to describe the trouble that you're in. Because of the deeds that you have done, by which God will judge you according to his perfect holiness, you are under the fullness of all of God's wrath towards evil. That is a very precarious place for your soul to dwell. The king of all creation does not find your deeds sufficient to please him. And you can't go back and fix the failures. There's no time machine that you can enter into to revisit those deeds and do something different. You cannot fix it. You cannot now do enough good deeds to put on this scale to hopefully kind of outweigh the ones that you did in the past that were wrong. And so woe to all of us who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We are ruined. We are ruined by the deeds that we have done that are evil in the sight of God, the holy and perfect judge. But praise God that he is not only the perfect judge who judges all things in justice and who applies his wrath to evil and injustice. He is also merciful and patient and kind and gracious. And so Peter reminds us of one of God's other great works. He mentions it in verse 17. If you call on him as father... Father, this God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and perfect in holiness and righteousness, this God who is the judge of all the earth, just in everything that he does, who would have the audacity to call upon this God as Father? Who would dare to presume upon him with such an intimate term what wretched man like you or me would think that they could come before this God and call him Father? And here we come face to face with the beauty of the gospel. This thing that we call the good news that is at the very core of what we believe as Christians. We can call on this God as Father for one reason and one reason alone. The reason is God actually has a true son. That son is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God's son who became true man in human flesh. Jesus, the son of God. And in taking upon himself our humanity, he lived in perfect righteousness and holiness. And everything that he did pleased God the Father. All those things that I just said that you have failed to do, he did not fail. He did them all. 
He hated evil, and he loved righteousness with all of his heart. With his whole being, body, heart, soul, and mind, he was fully devoted to what is good and right and true. But it was the will of God, his Father, to crush him on the tree, that cross. It was God's will to let him bear our shame and our curse for sin, to have his own son killed for your sins, for your unholiness, for your unrighteousness. And on that cross where Jesus, the perfect Son of God, bled and died for you and for me, God arranged a great exchange. Your evil deeds that you are guilty for were laid upon Christ, and His holiness was given as a gift to you in exchange. Christ suffered in agony, he bled and he died in your place under the wrath of God for the deeds that you have done that deserve judgment and wrath. And in exchange, Christ gave to you all of the favor and the love and the blessing and the acceptance of his Father. See, each person will be judged according to their deeds. That's true. And that should terrify us. Either you will stand before God with your own deeds and you will say, look, God, these are the things that I have done. And as a result, you will be condemned because you have fallen short of his standard, which is holiness, righteousness. Or you will stand before God in faith and you will say, God, look not at me, but look at Christ, your son, who on the cross bore my shame and my sin. Either you will stand before God and you will say, here are the things that I have done and you will be judged. Or you will stand before God and you will say, here are the things that Christ has done and I now wear his righteousness by virtue of his grace. And so by placing your faith in the deeds of Jesus, not in your deeds, but in the deeds of Jesus, then the evil of your own deeds is washed clean. Isn't that such a wonderful relief? It's, it's too good to be true, isn't it? Except it is true. And you are made righteous by his work. And praise God for that. That should cause you to breathe a great sigh of relief. And then we get to our part. How do we escape from the judgment of this God who impartially expects perfection and righteousness and holiness from all men. Peter says it in verse 17. He says, call on him as father. Cry out to God in humility. Lay aside your pride that might lead you to believe that you could do enough on your own. Forsake your own pathetic attempts to do the good deeds that you could never actually do sufficiently. Do what the psalmist did in our scripture reading when he cried out, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Christ has made a way on the cross that is God's work. Your work is to cry out, to call on him as Father, to repent and turn to this God who would gladly give you the gift of spiritual new birth. Born again into the righteousness of Christ, 
instead of into the natural sin of Adam, your forefather. So God's work is to judge all mankind for sin, and His work is to save all of those who call on Him as Father. Our work is to repent and turn to Him in faith and to trust in the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to make us a child of God. But I would say that our work, our part, it doesn't end there. It it really kind of only begins there. Notice in verse 17 what Peter gives us. He gives us an if-then statement. Do you see it? If you call on God as Father, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a conditional statement. If this is true, then this follows. It's got a cause and effect relationship. Maybe I could give you an example like this. If there are no clouds in the sky, then obviously it's not going to rain today, right? If X is true, then Y naturally follows. What Peter is saying here is that you cannot call on God as Father. You cannot repent of your sins and turn and trust in Jesus and then not live a changed life afterward. It is just the natural result of calling on God as Father that you would long to do what pleases Him. Let me say it another way. You cannot call on God as Father and then go on to continually live in a way that would disappoint Him or displease Him. You cannot call yourself a child of God and then live with a character that is contrary to who God is. Your conduct should be full of the fear of God as you walk through this life, as you live out this time of exile, where you are not yet in the kingdom of God in its fullness, but you are left to dwell here in this land that is a strange place for us to be. Peter uses the word fear. Now, we might typically think of this word fear as a negative thing, And that's probably a reasonable way to think of the word. But we need to understand that the fear that Peter is talking about here connects with God's holiness that he mentioned back in verses 14 through 16. Peter does not have in mind here a a fear that would lead us to think, God might cut me off. God might cast me out. God might look at my deeds and say, no, I've had enough of you. You don't deserve to be in my presence. That's not the kind of fear that Peter has in mind here because Peter reminds us God has already done his work. And so the fear that Peter is speaking about here is awe and reverence for the holiness of God. It's not a fear that would drive us away from God, but rather it's an awe and reverence, a fear that would drive us deeper into God's great love and affection for us, deeper into fellowship with God our Father. It's fear, actually, that we would go anywhere other than into the presence of God, fear that we might drift away from God our Father, not fear that we would draw close to this God. You know, when I was a kid, sometimes I would get in trouble. I know it's really hard to believe. You can't imagine it. But as I got older, uh, 
the consequence for getting in trouble moved away from something like a spanking or a timeout. It moved to this far more devastating response from my parents. Maybe you had something like this, and so you, you might anticipate where I'm going with this. The punishment that I feared the most was simply for my parents to say, man, Grady, we're just really disappointed in you. Man, that was so devastating. I'd almost be like, here's the keys to the car. Just take it away. Like, ground me and lock me in my room for a couple of days. Just don't tell me that you're disappointed in me. To hear from them that I had failed to live up to their expectations for me. Man, nothing was more just devastating. That motivated me to be something better. Right? I mean, you could spank me and I'd be like, I'll do that again. But if you said, Grady, we're just, we're just so surprised that you would do this kind of thing. That's, that's not who we thought you were. Man, you would never catch me making that mistake again. And I knew my parents loved me. I knew they loved me. And so the most devastating thing that they could say to me was that I had moved away from them by the bad conduct I had just engaged in. And I believe this is what Peter has in mind here with the word fear. If we call on God in repentance, and he causes us to be born again, and he's now our heavenly father, our loving heavenly father, by virtue of what Christ has done for us on the cross, then let us conduct our lives with fear in a way that shows him reverence and awe, in a way that returns his affection for us, in a way that gives him the love that he deserves for the love that he has given us. Let us fear being anywhere other than under the shadow of his wings, in his care. Let us fear that we would end up anywhere else than close to Jesus, under the grace of his life and his redemption and his work. I think that's what Peter has in mind here when he speaks of fear. So God's work is to save us by judging us, not according to our deeds, but according to the deeds of Christ. Our work is to call on him in repentance and faith. And then because he accepts us and he loves us, our work is to behave in a way that pleases him and honors him not wanting to disappoint him or show ingratitude by our actions for the things that he has done, not wanting to be anywhere other than close to him. But we've got another part in our work, and it's there at the beginning of verse 18. I think it's that word, knowing, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, we talked about this idea, I think, in detail quite a bit last week as well, but it's worth revisiting since Peter continues to talk about it here. Once again, Peter talks about our mind. He talks about what we know. He does not address our feelings or our hearts here. He calls us to know and remember what Christ has done in ransoming us. And friends, I really cannot emphasize enough that allowing our hearts to dictate the direction of our life is a very, very dangerous way to live as Christians. The reason is 
we don't always feel what is actually true. Do you see that in your own life? That you can know something to be true, but you can feel contrary to it, and the heart is so strong, it will just draw you into doing what you feel, even against what you know is true. Peter knows that we don't always feel like we have been ransomed out of that futile old life. Yet, nonetheless, it remains true that we have been ransomed. That is who we are. We may not always feel like obeying Jesus, but all goodness, all blessing, all joy and contentment is found in obeying Jesus. We may not always feel like God loves us or accepts us, and yet his love for us is unchanging, not based on our deeds at all. It's based on what Christ has done. Those things are simply true, whether we feel them or not. And so regardless of how we feel, we must continue always to draw near to God. Actually, even when it doesn't feel like God is near, the truth is he is. And so we must continue to do what we know, which is come to him. You know, when my wife, Leanne, and I get into an argument, well, that one time that it happened, you know, usually the first thing that I do, the first thing that happens is like my heart jumps into action. And, uh, and it goes very poorly from that moment onward. Right? Because my heart gets defensive. My heart puts up walls. My heart begins to feel attacked or like it needs to hide or it feels shame. It refuses to accept responsibility maybe for the things that I've done that are wrong. And so my heart tends to push her away, to distance her, to distance myself from her. And you know what's crazy is, like, in moments like that, I almost become two people. I can almost, like, watch myself doing things that I know are stupid, and my mind is telling me, this is really dumb. Like, this isn't helpful. This doesn't solve the problem. But the pull of the heart is so strong. My mind is telling me, Grady, this is wrong. Jesus would want you to say you're sorry, to accept responsibility, to repent. Jesus longs for you, Grady, to be at peace with your wife, not at enmity with your wife. God's desire is for you to humble yourself and to be patient and kind and loving in this moment. But my heart is so often prone to go the other direction, right? And this is why Peter is telling us to operate in what we know to be true, not what we feel. Sometimes I think we need to, like, put some metaphysical duct tape over the mouth of our heart and, like, throw it in the closet and lock it up because it will lead us contrary to how God would command us. So Peter reminds us, we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our fathers. Now, there are probably lots of feudal things that we've inherited from our forefathers, but two important ones come to mind. They grow out of the picture of humanity that we get in the Old Testament. The first feudal way is thinking that our deeds can actually please God and make him accept us. This is sort of the way things were in the Old Testament. 
if you do these things and you keep this law, then God will accept you. And as we discussed earlier, we have to understand and accept the fact we can never do enough good deeds for God to say, now I accept you based on the merit of your own work. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and anything short of that is not sufficient. And so to think that you can do enough good deeds to earn God's favor is futility. That is the futile way of our forefathers who tried to please God by their good deeds. But the other futile way of those who came before us is thinking that we can even conduct our lives with the fear of God in our own effort, in our own power, in our own strength. That is how weak we actually are. You cannot even draw near to Jesus with fear and humility without God giving you the power and the strength that you need to do that. You can't even actually know the things that you know are true without God being gracious to remind you and encourage you in those things. We have to be ransomed out of our prior foolishness, the futile ways of man. It's not enough to simply direct our hearts with our minds towards Jesus. We have to have Jesus do something radical to bring us to him. We have to be ransomed. And praise be to God that indeed that's what we have been. And so this is what we know. We know that obedience to Jesus is possible by virtue of the fact that we have been ransomed out of that old feudal way of living. Now, keep your finger here in 1 Peter. We're going to come back, but turn with me to Romans 6. Sometimes it's very helpful to look at different passages of Scripture to get clarity. And in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16, let's read a couple of verses. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. There's that feudal way that we inherited from our forefathers. There it is. We were slaves to sin. But now, through the work of Jesus, we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. Now look how Paul begins here, verse 16. Do you not know... What's he doing? He's reminding them of what they know to be true. We should know these things, and they should trickle down from our mind into our heart so that they then flow out from our heart, directing the way that we live, so that what he says in verse 17 here becomes true about the way that we conduct our lives, so that from our heart we are obedient because we've been set free from sin, and we've now become slaves of righteousness. Now, how was this freedom accomplished? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us 
in chapter 1, verse 18, that our freedom has been accomplished because Christ has ransomed us. A ransom is a price that is paid in exchange for a life. God forbid you ever have to pay some kind of ransom. It would be some sum of money that you would give in order to redeem a life. And in this case, the price paid for our ransom, it wasn't gold or silver. That would never be sufficient. It was something of incomparable value. The ransom paid for your life was the precious blood of the Son of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the ransom for your life. And Scripture teaches us that the ransom which he accomplished is threefold. Now, I know you're probably at the point in my sermon where you're like, three more points? I'll go through them quickly. First, we are ransomed from the condemnation of our sin. God who judges impartially according to each person's deeds will not judge us for the sinful deeds that we have committed because Christ paid the ransom for us. There is no condemnation, there is no punishment for us as Christians because the condemnation that you deserve and that I deserve was laid on Christ. So there is therefore now no condemnation. Second, we're ransomed from the power of sin. That's what we were just looking at in Romans chapter 6. We are no longer slaves to sin. Instead, we're set free from that bondage. We are actually now made to be slaves of righteousness. Our efforts to please God are no longer futile efforts. We can actually succeed in pleasing God because the work of Christ, His power, is present in us to lead us so that our conduct comes from the heart and pleases God in all of his holiness. Third, we're ransomed into a new kind of relationship with God. We used to be God's enemy because of our sin. But now Christ has made us children of God so that we can call out to God as Father and expect that he would respond to us as a good and loving Father would. All of this has been accomplished for us by the blood of Jesus. And Christ can do all of this for us because Peter reminds us Jesus is the perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish or spot. At this point, Peter is referring back to the Old Testament, the system of atonement and sacrifices that we find there, particularly in Leviticus or Exodus chapter 12. In order for Jesus to make atonement for our sins, he had to be perfect, pure, and unblemished, a sacrifice that would be honoring to God. And so in this discussion of ransom and the precious blood of Jesus Christ then, Peter's telling us that this, in this great exchange, Christ's life became ours and our life became his. That's that great exchange. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I love this verse, maybe you know it, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So our ransom goes far beyond just rescue, my friends. 
I mean, that alone would be glorious to be rescued. But it is an actual participation in the death of Christ that he died on the cross and the life that he now lives before God. By faith we receive his life so that our conduct, our deeds, our life from this point on in our exile while we live can be lived in holiness that pleases God. And so we've come full circle back to the work of God. Do you notice that? It's always going to be a begin and end with the work of God. Be encouraged because your lack of ability to do what you should do in response to the gospel, it's made up for by what God has done through the gospel. God's work is to judge and to save and to ransom us from the futility of our sin and to unite us to his Son, Jesus. Our work is only to abide in him and to live out the righteousness that he has already given to us. We conduct our lives with fear. We draw close to this God in awe and reverence, fear that we would be anywhere other than in the shadow of his grace and his love. Because in the work of the cross, God has already done everything to draw us to himself. Let me close with a quote from Andrew Murray that I think sums this all up quite well. He says, How blessed must be the experience of such a union with the Lord Jesus to be able to look upon his death as mine just as it really was his. Upon his perfect obedience to God, his victory over sin and complete deliverance from its power as mine And to realize that the power of that death does by faith work daily with a divine energy in mortifying the flesh and renewing the whole life into the perfect conformity to the resurrection life of Christ. In other words, since Jesus has done all of the hard work to make us his own, let us respond by pressing on to make him our own knowing that our efforts will not be futile because Jesus cannot fail. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you that you are a just God. We thank you that you are a perfect God. We shudder to think what a God would be like who was less than perfect and holy and good and just. And so we thank you that you are who you are. You are the righteous judge of all the earth. And we thank you that by virtue of the work of Jesus on the cross, atoning for our sins, that we do not have to be judged according to our own deeds. By faith in Christ, we can be judged according to his deeds. We thank you that you arranged this great exchange. And I pray that our response to that would simply to be to call on you as Father, to trust in the work of your Son, Jesus, and to conduct our lives in a way that would fear you, that we would honor you, that we would love you. And we thank you that every provision has been made for us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.